Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is, uh, is pretty much confirmation that the internet changed your brain. A team of researchers from across the globe just found the internet is producing both short-term and sustained alterations in different areas of cognition which affect your ability to pay attention, your memory process, your social interactions. In other words, you're already a cyborg. You just didn't notice it. And this is a first-of-its-kind review. It was published in World Psychiatry Journal, and we're talking Harvard University, King's College, Oxford, University of Manchester, a few other big things like that. They all collaborated to say, what is going on with our brains? And then they looked at other studies that come from the areas of psychiatry, psychology, even neuroimaging, and said high levels of internet use, including limitless streams of prompts and notifications, means your attention is constantly divided, which decreases your capacity for maintaining concentration on a single task. And that that actually changes the way that you store information and even the way you value facts and knowledge and in your brain. And they're basically saying, we don't really know what this is, but we have, quote, deep concerns about the potential impacts of increasing internet use on the brain and how it's altering the structure, the functioning of your brain, as well as the social fabric. So what did you do? Stop using the internet? No. Turn off the damned alerts on your phone, even the ones that say there's a new episode of Bulletproof Radio. It doesn't matter. You should have no alerts in your life. You know how many alerts I get on my phone? I get text messages from some people come up. And that's it. I don't get emails. Uh, it, in fact, if your phone right now, you need to pull over if you're driving, if your phone gives you email alerts, you need to pull over and turn that off. It'll actually change your brain. It's that big of a deal. In social media, you know, who cares who is following you right now? I don't get any of that stuff. Someone hit you up on Instagram, it doesn't matter. Go to Instagram when you want to and look at them. Uh, so this is just a really big across the globe, top university studies saying, no, that stuff is messing you up. And yeah, maybe there's other things that are good that are coming from having the internet into your brain. Oh, there's this little fact that you have access to more information and knowledge than a king or president did 50 years ago. It's insane. You can do whatever you want with that. It, it's awesome. You don't need to go to Harvard University uh, to learn whatever you want to learn because it's all there for free right now. And you just have to take the time to do it. It's probably on YouTube. So anyway, the internet's kind of good for your brain. It's also bad for your brain if you let it run things. But if you use it strategically, it kind of kicks ass. At least that's what I think. I don't know how much of that was a fact versus a rant, but you guys go with that, right? What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use.
Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is David Meltzer, who is a fascinating and interesting author. We're talking about a guy who was CEO of Samsung's first smartphone division, a guy who's had a profoundly strong career in business and is written books on actually how to be happy and books on how people succeed at different levels and what the definition of success is. And he just came out with a new book that I thought was really worth talking about today. And the book is called Game Time Decision-Making, High-Scoring Business Strategies from the Biggest Names in Sports. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess something to you before I even really fully introduce David. I really don't care that much about sports. I mean, I've had, I have some good friends in sports. You know, Nick, Nick Foles has been on the show and and you know the Bryan brothers and and these amazing human beings, I mostly didn't know who they were because I like to play sports. But in terms of watching them, I actually read PubMed and things like that when I have spare time or I play with my kids. So I'm pretty damn good at ping pong, um, and I might watch that on TV. But I'm I'm just I don't have time to be a fan, right? So I heard about this book. I'm like, I don't really want to interview Dave because. He's going to want to talk about all these sports people, and I don't know who half of them are, even though I think it's awesome what they're doing. I just don't know who they are. But when I looked at what he's achieved in his life, uh, Dave has done some amazing stuff. And what this book is really about is what's going on in your mind, not just on the field, but everywhere. And when people at the top of their game, you know, I did write the book called Game Changers. Uh, when you're doing things on the field, it really matters. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview because, uh, well, it, it it's very rare to find a very senior executive who's also paying attention um, and working in the sports and entertainment agency world, going from tech to sports and just saying, what do people who kick the most ass actually do? So Dave, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Dave. I'm really excited to be here. And yeah, it's interesting because I'm not actually even a sports fan anymore myself. I just am in the business of sports. So I think that's a big change. I've always looked at sports and I was successful in this business because I didn't have the emotional big eyed response. What I learned to do was monetize those people that actually have an irrationality. I used to call it the rationality of middle-aged men. Uh, and I wanted to monetize that irrationality, but I view sports because of the mass appeal in order to teach people the lessons I believe that we're here to learn, to expand and accelerate what we want out of our existence. Now, you've had a, a strange path to get here because, <laughs> I mean, you you not only had all these career successes, you sort of went bankrupt. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I did go bankrupt. <laughs> you yeah. actually did. Yeah. Uh, and then, and that was your first book. It's like, hey, here's how I had to come back, not just from having money, but from having money and a, a spiritual practice to make me successful. Uh, and um, that's kind of cool how you <laughs> you worked with uh, Lee, uh, Lee Steinberg 
Uh, and you know, we're talking Jerry Maguire level stuff. What I want to know is in 2014, you wrote your book about this. Okay. I you know, hit rock bottom financially and I, I came back and you're a happier guy. And you know, we've had time to chat. You actually are a happy guy, which is, which is cool. It's always nice to see people are authentic. Um, why the shift to looking at what a professional athlete does? Because some of those guys seem pretty miserable. Some of the ones I've met have been profoundly awesome human beings. But you also you see this stuff on you know National Enquirer or ESPN. I think there's a difference between those two. And uh, uh, it seems like there's a lot of a lot of problems across all the sports in this. So why is this a population of people that we should pay attention to about happiness? You know, because I think the successful athletes have a spirit of excellence that exists in a conscious level, uh, even a subconscious level, meaning that I believe great athletes, successful athletes, professional athletes think, say, and do things consistently and persistently, and they create a belief or the neural pathways, as you know, Dave, in your mind, that really create discipline and habits. Uh, where I found it interesting is that the reason I went bankrupt is also the reason that these highly functioning, successful athletes go bankrupt. 75% of the athletes that we represented uh, two and a half years out of playing were bankrupt, even though they had every opportunity, every chance in access to financial literacy. Seriously, support. 75%? That sucks. Yeah. And so I started really exploring the unconscious competency. Like, why is it that people have a thermostat that if we grow up with nothing, that we have to actually look at our personality traits, characteristics, obsessions, and addictions that create an energy, this genetic layer that, you know, some people think is four generations. I personally believe it's from billions of lifetimes that I carry this energy uh, inside of me, this unconscious of, competency. Of lifetimes <laughs> of your own lifetimes? So you're like super yeah, my Buddhist. soul. Yeah, like a super, right. I'm a Judah Buddha. Yeah. Jewish and culture, Judah Buddhist Buddha. one. <laughs> um, I've actually never heard that. That's funny. But I, I literally was looking at why do we set these thermostats? And I, I was able to recover because I looked at a, a quantum shift in my life. I was so addicted to money uh, and the power of money. I believe money bought happiness. And everything that I did in life indicated that money bought happiness. I was a millionaire nine months out of law school, bought my mom a house and a car, which was the only reason I wanted to be rich. And I was really, really happy. But eventually, there was only so many things I could buy. And what I learned was the power of shopping. And not just on a pragmatic level of, you know, going from a green card to a platinum card to a black card where I could go on Amazon and there's different powers of shopping. I learned that if I shop for the right things, that it would make me happy. Uh, and that a lot of athletes and celebrities, they shop for the wrong things and they end up miserable on drugs and even suicidal. But even and since we, and people look up to these people, so we have to now create a, some sort of learning curve that just because you're great on the field, doesn't mean you're great at all things off the field. So so what are the brands I shouldn't shop for? <laughs> well, for me, it was the Ferraris and the Porsches and, the, <laughs> and, and, and they're my lessons, right? I believe we're here to learn lessons and the lessons keep on coming until we learn them. Manifesting itself in pain is a good indicator whether we've learned those lessons or not. I believe truly though that faith is like a green card, a platinum card and a black card. And faith to me was that aggregate of thinking, saying, doing, believing, and the, the genetic side of my personality traits, characteristics, obsessions, and addictions that created a frequency that no matter what I did, really attracted with 
action, right? Attracted. If I got out of my own way, cleared the interference, what I wanted. I think it's so funny that so many times in our lives, you know, we can plant a seed for tomatoes. We're not surprised when tomatoes come, but I see so many people planting seeds for what they don't want. And they're super surprised when bankruptcy comes. I had planted seeds my entire life for bankruptcy even though my actions and everything resulted in over a hundred million dollars, right? I didn't lose like a penny. I mean, it was a lot of money that I lost. Okay. How do you actually lose a hundred million dollars? Good. And it's in the book. So people that ask, so number one, go ahead and surround yourself with the wrong people and the wrong ideas. That'll be a catalytic event to lose everything. But when you make bad assumptions and here's the assumption I made, I didn't need any help. I was Midas. I was millionaire nine months out of law school, multimillionaire by the time I was 30. I never, literally, every job I took, everything I did was a financial success. When I owned a golf course, a ski mountain, 33 properties, a ton of stock, I got into a lawsuit and my ego, my need to be right, my need to be offended, my all these different needs of my ego, I went through all my liquidity trying to prove I was right in a huge lawsuit, knowing without a doubt in my mind that I could borrow against 40, $50 million of equity that I had with my private bank. Meanwhile, when I needed cash, I went to my bank, I made that bad assumption. And I said, Hey, can I get 5 million? They said, no, I almost fell over. I said, excuse me, I, I have equity. I, you know, give me a line. No, no, the bank's not doing well. And, you know, we're not borrowing on, you know, non-stated income on straight equity on properties. We're going to have to go through and do due diligence and take all this time. Well, meanwhile, I'm starting looking there. They needed to take more time. I went to go look for more money pretty soon. Nobody was giving money. I missed one payment. And then the whole thing started, you know, you miss one payment. You're not able to borrow any money. I can't sell stuff fast enough. And that's a lot of bills coming through. It's a, its own economy when you have that much in property. Uh, and it was a mess. And I literally, it just started to fall. I know, though, that it was the greatest lesson that I ever learned. Um, and it took me nine, nine years to process the lesson energetically because I used to tell people, and I didn't mean it, you know, oh, this, this is a really good thing. I'll be fine. You know, trying to convince myself. Uh, but it took a good nine years before truly internally I know that that lesson was so valuable. And, you know, I'll never, never be broke again because I understand and don't carry that energy. I am worthy of everything I have, and I can manifest anything I want. Do you ever want to, I don't know, punch one of the attorneys who files baseless lawsuits for no reason other than just harassment? Yeah, I, I think it, it's <laughs> funny that you said that. <laughs> no, you, it was, you know what's so funny is that I, I think, you know, it's one of the passions. If I wanted to change our structure, I, I think our, you know, our legal system is completely upside down. I would love to be able to hold plaintiffs responsible for the accusations that they make, uh -huh. meaning they're financially liable, that you just can't bring up. And even worse than the lawsuits is making claims on the Internet that go along with a claim. Right. Because we yep. immediately believe I could sue you today, Dave, for something completely ridiculous, post it up with my millions of followers and it would affect your life. And then you would have no recourse against me because I could just have a tiny thing that was true. For example, you and I were in a hotel room and did my podcast. I could make up some story. And just the fact that you were in my hotel room at the podcast is enough evidence to go ahead and file the lawsuit. And in the end, it would cost us both money. But you probably would have to settle with me because it would be cheaper than the half a million dollars to have, you know, all that news out there in a lawsuit. And it, that's our system. And it's unfair. And by the way, Dave, 
Nothing happened in the hotel room. I'm going on record. I can never sue you. You were an amazing person. <laughs> Just legally. Everyone know that. There's no lawsuit like coming. Gentleman. You were an amazing person. Yes. Everybody, <laughs> there's seven people in the room, tons of witnesses. He was uh, a genius. <laughs> no, it's funny. I, I don't I don't go in hotel room meetings with people. I always have the door, like the lock on the door thing open, you know, so that the door doesn't close because I've never actually uh, not done that because it's it just removes any any possibilities right, right. Um, plus having a stable marriage is usually helpful <laughs> i agree um but it, i mean apart from that I, I i just know that when people go through bankruptcy you end up seeing just like a swarm of attorneys and fees and and all that sort of stuff mine was worse i had a malpractice suit that i won I, my lawyer committed malpractice and it was oh really ugly. Uh, and, you know, one, it, they settled in two seconds and everything just went into the bankruptcy and I had a fresh tabla rasa, a new start to my life. So, so that, let's talk about forgiveness. Right? I mean, that, this is something I spent a lot of my, my time on. 40 years of Zen is very focused on, on that. You said it took you nine years uh, to go through and process all this stuff. Did you have a specific... Uh, switch or trigger, or maybe it's forgiveness, maybe it's something else that let you turn off all that. I mean, a lot of crap comes out in, in your mind when you're going through like, you know, you, you have this one picture of the future and all of a sudden, I know because I lost $6 million I made when I was 26. And it was, it messed with my head. It was really traumatic. So what did you do? I first had to forgive myself, right? I started realizing that I truly had to forgive myself for all the mistakes that I had made. I wanted to turn every mistake into a miracle. I wanted to prove to people that setbacks are setups for something better. I had all these things in my mind. Now, the interesting thing was there was one person, a neighbor, who I had uh, you know, bought a condo conversion from who I blamed, right? That's the person that I was in a lawsuit with and you know, made up all these lies about me. Like It was horrible. Well, when I say it took nine years, it was because I verbally could forgive him. You know, I was out there saying, you know what, I, I know I forgive him, I forgive him. And then I'd go home and dream about pulling out his fingernails and putting Tabasco on it. You know, like I, I literally yeah. had very issues. So the technique that I used, and it literally went on for nine years, and I've used this to shift my true energy. Because I know mentally I can let things go. You know, I can think, say, and do the right things. But if I can't shift my true energy, then I'm going to have yeah. hateful feelings and it's going to attract go. hateful and attacking thoughts. So what I do, and this is very woo-woo, I don't know if it's zen enough for you, but I closed my eyes and I looked at the guy that I hated and I started thinking about all the good things about him. I thought he was a really good dad. You know, he, he was a community guy. Like he had a lot of good qualities and I find the light in him with my eyes closed. And every night I used to cover him as I was hating him and I'd find the light, I'd cover him. And then I'd picture the true loves of my life, my family, and I'd combine the light of the two. And then I take the light and hold it over me in my mind's eye until I physically felt a shift of energy and slowly, but surely just like working out, Dave, it actually shifted my energy and dissipated the actual feeling not what I thought, said, and do, or even believed. There was actually a feeling of tenseness, of anxiety, of hatred, of attack every time I thought of the guy. And it finally dissipated to the point where I went up to him at tailgate one time and I walked up to him and thanked him, right? I thanked him at a pure energy and he was freaked out because obviously he hadn't processed his feelings for me. <laughs> you, thought he, you, were gonna, you thought you were gonna punch him? <laughs> he sure did. He flinched and I just grabbed his hand with both of mine and I just said, 
I just need to thank you because you helped me learn the greatest lesson of my life that has truly shifted my perspective. And I wanted to thank you so much. And I walked away. And it, and it wasn't I was just thinking, saying, and doing, believing it. I actually felt grateful. And that's what I try to do with things so I don't ha- manifest or attract what I don't want. Now, in your book, you talk about how there's a conscious mind, which is you just talked about thinking, and that's what you think, say, and do. The subconscious mind, which is the things you believe, but then you talk about um, this unconscious competency. Where does this feeling thing that you're talking about like, like and I, I i do viscerally know what you're talking about but in your teaching in your new book about offensive and defensive mindset i don't see feeling in there i, I see consciousness and unconsciousness but unconsciousness is different than feeling or is it not so feelings are emotions and emotion mm-hmm. is energy and motion the energy that we emit, I believe, comes from our personality traits, characteristics, obsessions, addictions, our DNA. The feelings actually come from an energy that is emitted through that continuum or aggregate. I call it faith of the aggregate of conscious, subconscious, and unconscious being. All of those together create an emotion. And if we can shift our emotions, which is the highest vibration you know, literally of my, of my belief, a frequency that then can either one, higher frequency you have, the more aware you can be of that which vibrates lower than it, or more importantly, even at its similar vibration, faith-wise, we can put faith in something and get what we want. And it's a three-step process for me. In the conscious level, it's the law of Goya, like our friend John Asaroff talks about, you know, get mm-hmm. off your ass. And I think there's three things we do to get off our ass. One, work hard. Two, work smart. Three, work long. And w- working long is interesting because most people don't work long. They have a very short-term perspective. You are talking earlier about the internet and how it affects our brain. I work in a time zone of infinity. So I work really long in my perspective. I focus on the acceleration and growth, not on the outcome, right? And so I can achieve things through that long thinking. So that's the law of Goya. Law of attraction we talked about, which is a frequency that attracts what it was. The key to this emotional side is what I call the law of surrender. Everyone has interference. It has a corrosion. I believe we're like lamps. We're always plugged into the to the power, the source of all this extraordinary power. In fact, we have enough power in our pinky to light up your house for a year. And we don't use it, but we're plugged in. So what my goal of the law of surrender is to know two mindsets. The first is I only have one action that I can take in a day. The minute I wake up, I have one action. Everything after that is a reaction. So my mindset shifted to my first action is going to be to find peace or to clear the connection or interference from the most powerful source of energy, inspiration. And then two, everything that occurs that throws me off of that, these ego-based emotions, ego consciousness that causes interference, instead of trying to react to that, my reaction is going to go back to the source, go back to center, go back to peace, which I know is very zen. And then I'll be in a better place to be productive and accessible to all. If you were to talk to your 25-year-old self, how the heck would you have known where to go to find peace in the first place? You say, I'm going to go back to peace. But most people, honestly, I didn't understand that place at all until much later in life, until I started doing a bunch of heavy-duty neurofeedback and ayahuasca and stuff like that. Right on. Uh, So what's the path to peace for people who maybe haven't got there yet? 
So I created a four-step pragmatic approach that actually is a transcoding of what you and I have learned over you know decades. And so what I do is try to make things simple. So I talk about four values. I talk about, hey, just try and be grateful. Right, change your perspective mm-hmm. with gratitude and, and literally talk about the simplest form. You want to change your life. If I'm talking to my 25-year-old self, say thank you before you go to bed and say thank you when you wake up. Try to convince yourself that you get to do everything. You don't have to do anything. You know, Really learn to love what you're doing. Be grateful. Two, forgiveness. Right? Hey, forgive yourself. Don't worry about the other person. Just forgive yourself. Three, and most importantly at 25, is accountability right? I I would teach my 25 year self, hey, don't, it's not below the line, blame, shame, and justification. You don't have to do that. Ask yourself two questions. What did I do to to cause this in my life? And what am I supposed to learn from it? Uh, And then finally, try to teach them about inspiration to, to live first to connect to that which inspires you, then inspire others, right? Don't search for it. Try to learn where that is. Then below that, I would teach my 25-year-old self to ask for help. That's the biggest lesson yeah. I needed was radical humility. Hey, there's a bunch of old dudes like Dave and I that are so <laughs> flattered and so willing to take our time. Dave would even wake up early to help somebody. Uh, but literally, wake up early, whatever it is, I ask for help. And here's how I'd phrase it. Do you know anybody that could help me? Mr. Asprey, do you know anyone that could help me? Mr. Meltzer, do you know anyone that could help me? I need this. Three, after you learn to ask, understand time by just being a student of your calendar. Study your calendar. Look at time. Look at sleep. Study sleep. It's eight, you know, eight hours a day. It's only, it's probably the, the most time, the activity that we get paid for or don't get paid for, there's no work, but the most amount of time we spend in our lives consistently is sleep, but nobody studies it and it has the most impact on the continuum of the conscious, subconscious, and unconscious mind, but nobody gets sleep trainers. Nobody studies it. I do. I, w- I would drop every mentor I have. Last person I would drop would be my sleep mentor because it's a third of my life and I want to be good at it. You know, I, I had that one wrong for a long time. Like sleep's a necessary evil. Uh, and certainly I started Bulletproof when I was sleeping only about four hours a night for actually quite a while. It turns out you can do that. And as long as you're pretty good during your four hours of sleep, it, it's possible. But I get my six and a half hours the way the studies actually show. Uh, and, but I, every day I have my aura ring on and I've now for 12 years, I've had a piece of tech monitoring my sleep quality. So I have 12 years of sleep data and I've gotten to be a badass at sleep to the point that I get the REM and deep sleep that the average 20 year old gets in eight hours. I get in six and a half hours and I'm in my mid forties and it's supposed to go the yeah. other way. And I'm with you. I'm 51. I even write about my new book. So I, I'm yeah, with I'm you. I'm 51 and I do this. Now, how do you monitor your sleep? How do you know you're good at sleep? Do you have a headband or something? Yeah, I have okay. a sleep monitor as well. I okay. actually go in and do a sleep study every two years just to make sure of sleep wow. apnea. So they have a San Diego sleep clinic. Um, my sleep yep. coach is Dr. Mita. And so I, because I have two schedules, my daily routine that's unaffected, a normal routine, and then an adaptable routine. So if I go to Hong Kong, I call my sleep coach and we discuss what time I'm flying, if it's necessary to get the bed in the plane or how I should, what position I should be in, when I should open up the, that's awesome. open up the, the shades or not, uh, what to eat, what time to eat on the plane, how I'm going to do these things so that I can keep improving my sleep, not depreciate my sleep. What usually happens to people as they get older and older. That is beautiful. I love it. I didn't think we were going to go there in this interview. I'm sending you, by the <laughs> way, some 
some true dark glasses. I don't get jet lag anymore because of those. That's that's a big deal. Awesome. Thank um, you. <laughs> see if your sleep coach agrees with them and likes them. All right. You talked about something else in your your process of how you were able to let go um, of you know all the 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 really the anger that comes along with something like bankruptcy. Uh, and you talked about first gratitude, saying oh, I'm going to find something I can be grateful for about this person who, frankly, was sounds like it was kind of an asshole. Um, right. So, but first you found some little things. So yeah, he's, he's a good, he's a good parent. He's, you know, completely baseless lawsuit and you know, a bad human being, but a good parent. So like, okay, a little spark of goodness. Right. And you use gratitude as the, the gateway to actually, uh, do what I would call forgiveness. Uh, and that's that's the process, by the way, that I use it forty years of Zen. So, like, it's it's a process I'm really familiar with. What what's standing out to me though is, I mean, you've you've been a big time CEO and all that stuff. That is not a common spiritual teaching. You don't see it anywhere. So, where did you learn that you had to be grateful first in order to get to whatever that glowy state is that let you, you know, overlay good energy on top of this bad thing until it was gone? Like, where did you find that? I, it, it was I was born in me. Uh, I was born a grateful person, but also socialized by my mom and my grandparents that were consistent. My mom made us pray every night uh, because we had so little. You can imagine five boys, one girl in a two bedroom apartment in Akron, Ohio. Most people would not have the perspective that there was more than enough in my life. I actually thought when I was five years old and my father left that there was more than enough. And it was because my mom had this gratitude practice that she would make us, if we didn't come uh, down to breakfast grateful, she'd send us back up to our room and restart, right? Wow. Yeah, so there was no negative. So, okay. It was, so this was practice, and then I lost that, and my wife saved my life because she literally, before two years before I lost everything, noticed that I was living my life the wrong way and told me who I've adored her since the fourth grade. I asked her to go study at sixth grade camp. I pursued her through high school, wow. she hated me, uh, high school, college, law school. And finally, I bump into her in Mexico. And for some reason, there was finally a connection and forgiveness by her for the egg I threw at her when I was 12. And we and <laughs> and, and but this woman who I w would die for, and I is the best choice or decision I've ever made, told me that she was not going to be with me that either I start practicing and take stock in who I was and what I wanted to become, or I better start practicing being lonely. Um, and I had three beautiful daughters at the time as well. And now I have a son too, but I'm, I'm like you, I have a, a great relationship and I, w I was, you know, cold turkey, shock therapy, put back into gratitude. And that's where I built this outline that wrote my first book. I wanted to figure out how is it I became a millionaire nine months out of law school? How was it I was came from nothing? All I had was law loans when I graduated. I had no great skills. How how was it different for me? And I put an outline together of how to take the what, the possibility, because I always knew what I wanted or thought I did, and how I became inspired, the why, and then how I actually manifested or created the perspective 
of the reality that I was going to get it, how I put clothes on my idea and allowed it to come to fruition. And it came from, you know, books like Think and Grow Rich, very pragmatic. I started studying the Course in Miracles. Uh, I had mm-hmm. run into, you know, coincidence started happening. I was consulting for a guy in The Secret, Lee, Lee Brower, who introduced me to all the TLC people. And all these things are okay. happening for two years. The funniest thing is when I lost everything, I was already CEO of Lee Steinberg. I was making good money. I was a very spiritual person. I was prepared to handle what was happening. And I was really glad it didn't happen two years earlier because I don't know if I would have recovered, but it was almost as if I was prepared when it happened by all these things. And I met this woman that taught me to meditate. And that was a really big part of my life. I do theta meditation and quantum healing. And by accident, I sat next to this crazy doctor, medical doctor who looked at me and said, you're so full of light, but you're blocking it. And that's how my meditation experience started because she started explaining to me like what she meant. And I thought she was crazy. Earlier, you called yourself a, a Judah Buddha. Uh, so, all right, I, I'm going to go back a little bit. You, you ascribe a lot of this gratitude stuff to your mom. Okay, where did she get it? Her parents, my my grandfather, her father, I called him the, he was my papa. I called him the poptimist. He, he, <laughs> he you, you know, I always said I was the toptimist. Above a toptimist would be a poptimist. He was the top of, he was someone that you literally, he could find light and anything. And he was just so positive. And I know that that was handed down to her. Some of these practices were handed down to her. He, he played piano for Benny Goodman. He dropped out of dental school and was a world famous big band pianist. His job was to make people happy by entertaining him. He literally looked at everything with a glass half, half full all the time. And the only thing he did, which was interesting, is he never let any of his children play an instrument because he truly was so driven by education. And the one disappointment in his life, the only thing I ever heard him say that was negative was, I wish I would have finished dental school. Uh, I left dental school to join the big band and I never finished and he drove his kids, you know, he believed the fetus wasn't fully developed till after graduate school and his kid and, and my mom, I always tell people my favorite story about my mom, because my siblings are hyper successful, Harvard, Penn, Columbia. I never knew how intelligent I was because I got to be in high school and wanted to play football in college. So I didn't go to an Ivy League school like my siblings, but we're talking perfect scores on the SAT, summa cum laude from the best schools. And literally people say, how did your mom do it as a single mom? I said, very simple. She was a black black belt in the martial arts. She's actually a third degree black belt in the martial art of Jewish guilt. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) so between waking us up at five and guilting us almost to death, we were hyper successful children. (laughs) Okay. So I I was, I was kind of going there. Right. So, so that is a stereotype, but uh, you know, that, that, that is a, in fact, most of my Jewish friends will talk about that one way or another. Right. Uh, So, most of the time, though, if you grow up with guilt and shame, you've got to do 20 years of therapy, and it doesn't necessarily lead to high performance. Or if it does, it's high performance and great unhappiness, right? So yeah. was shame and guilt a part of your unhappiness in the first part of this? It, it was. Uh, more shame-based, uh, meaning I wasn't worthy of everything yeah. I had and felt very, very guilty. I, guilt is an ego-based consciousness. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know it attracts shortages, voids, and obstacles in our lives. I literally remember saying to myself, you know, I was so guilty to have the money. Of course, I was going to buy my mom a house and a car first. I, you know, I felt guilty paying off my my law loans before I paid for my brother's college. 
right? I, like this is the stuff that went through my mind. I was not worthy of anything I received and I would constantly, and when I, the only time I was unhappy, literally in my whole existence there was when I caught my mom crying because we couldn't afford something, which created great guilt for me, right? She was working two jobs. And even worse than working two jobs, she'd come home from a second grade teacher, she'd pack our dinners in a paper bag, she'd fill up turnstiles at the 7-Eleven and the convenience stores. The older siblings would teach the younger siblings, and I would tell my siblings, and sometimes even my mom, my dad was a shit, right? He Back then, you didn't pay child support. He had a wife that was closer to my age than his. He wow. didn't pay attention to us, and I would sit there my at five years old and tell my mom that my dad was my hero, and why couldn't you be look more like dad? And meanwhile, my mom was doing all those things. That created a lot of guilt. When I made my first $10 million in one year, my mom made $17,000. I felt so not worthy. I, I remember feeling so guilty, like, how could it be that I'm getting all this stuff and my mom worked so hard for $17,000 a year and she was crying because we couldn't fix the car, right? And I, I buy cars like they're gifts. You, you know what I mean? Like I, 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 right. I, I had to work through all of that. And, you know, I think the lesson of losing everything so I could readjust and, and find my center, you know, it, I wish I had your program available to me because I will tell everybody here, you know, we, you're so generous to our charity, the Unstoppable Foundation, which I'm the chairman of. And, you know, one of my biggest ego boosts is people will donate money for me to executive coach them. And Jack Canfield and I, as much as people donate for that, three times as many, as much money is given to be in your program. And people were <laughs> like, can I buy one? Can, I think it was a ridiculous amount of money and four people did it. And that's how powerful what yeah. you teach is. And I think, I think I lived what you taught. And I think if I went to your program, it would just reinforce a lot of things that I, that I did somehow through life practice. You figured out a lot of stuff that most people don't which is one of the reasons I wanted to, to have you on. And yeah, at the Unstoppable Foundation, I think that that, that donation of 40 years of Zen classes, as a, if I'm recalling right, it built four, four schools for girls in different villages in Africa, uh, which is- Yes, and I got to see those, and you, it'll impact thousands of people. Have you been to them? Oh, yeah, I haven't twice. Been. So, I'm not sure that I have, yeah, I have you a, need to go. a trip to Africa on my schedule for the year. <laughs> but I want pictures. <laughs> Come with me. It was, it was cool. <laughs> I wasn't planning to do that either. Um, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's awesome. It, it's, it's intriguing, though, that somehow you figured this out, but most people don't. Uh, and it is very easy to be crushed by a, a defeat. Uh, a bankruptcy like the one you went through, especially when you're flying really high, the higher you fly, the harder you fall sort of thing. Um, but you you did something. And, and when I'm digging around, okay, so you had a gratitude practice from your mom. You also had some, some, some shame and some guilt. And you didn't have, you know, one guru who suddenly did this. You collected from uh, the people you met, right? And eventually, you know, if you're, you're in TLC, you're running a big nonprofit I didn't even mention in your intro. Um, you know, and you're just, you're doing a lot of stuff. And, and I, I, I find that arc to be more interesting than someone who just, you know, went up to the top and stayed up at the top. And maybe there's more to learn from that for people listening. Um, and you've, you've said some other things and, and some of these are almost a little bit cliche and certainly it's in my game changers book as well, but you say you are who you hang with, but the way you put it is, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. So here's the problem though. 
how the hell do you know if you're hanging with the right people? I'm, I'm putting on my you know 20 year old, 25, 30 year old hat. I hang out with the people who are my roommates, people who are in my classes, uh, you know, people who are I work with. How do you go about when you're just getting going? What's your advice? Maybe it, it's, it's from athletes in your new book. Great. That's that's a really great thing because I think there's two things we can do when you're young and we're forced to be around our roommates in our dorm room. We're forced to sit next to somebody in class. We're forced to be on the basketball team with somebody. You know, th- these are forced relationships. So the first side of it is those people that we don't get to choose to be around. A lot of times we call them family and friends. Uh, but <laughs> we, all we need to do is two things. Our job to be around them is not to put faith in what they want for us. I think that's the mistake we make when we're young is we put faith in what other people want for us because we're afraid of what we want. And so when we manifest what other people want for us, we actually resent them. And so it damages the relationship. So where do we go with other people that we have to be around? We go to understanding and we pray for their happiness. So whatever opinions they have, my goal is to learn lessons from them and understand them obviously not let them affect me. I I let their opinions go right through my hand, which is the most difficult thing because I was a pleaser. I was insecure. Somebody would say something about me and I would take it to heart. I'd put faith into it and it was terrible. Um, The other side is to choose when you say, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. I, I use a pragmatic thing. I said, look, what you want in life, if you want a lot of money, then go find friends or mentors that are in the position or situation you want to be in. The people you get to choose to be around, yep. those are the ones that we have to really be, I think, pragmatic and calculate. Look, this is what I want because those are the people that are going to elevate our understanding, our awareness, and our frequency and also provide us opportunity. I My life has changed always by people that you know can stroke a million-dollar check just like my broke friends can stroke a $10 check. If this is there's two different energies of the world of manifestation. One is money. It's an object of energy that we put into the flow. And usually we use Amazon now mm-hmm. to get what we want. And the other is faith. And so if you're not a, a realist, if you don't realize that I should have economically and surround myself with the right friends that have a lot of resources for me, I'm not doing myself any justice. I'm diminishing my capacity to manifest on this pragmatic earth of getting money. And that was one thing that I think I did very, very well is I had those mentors. I surrounded myself with people. Like when I was in law school, I got two job offers for one reason, right? I did very well. I worked hard and smart and long, but I became friends. I went to Greece and became friends with the head guy named Professor Ianopoulos, who wrote the Louisiana treaties, who was so connected and the Dean of the law school, because I knew one thing I went to the law school because the Dean told me, if you come here, I'll take care of you. And I said, you know what? That's going to get me a job because that guy's going to know who has the jobs and I want to be an oil and gas litigator. And so I made friends and went to Greece and literally that's my focus. It wasn't to get all A's from the guy. It was literally, so he liked me. And all I did was ask him for help. I told him, you know what? I want to be just like you when I grow up. Can you help me? And I flattered him just like people flatter us. And the guy made me his mentee. And then when this job for legal research online came up from the publisher of his book, which he made seven figures from, they said, do you know any young guys who can sell ice to Eskimos that are good litigators? And I was top of his, of his choice. And that's, those two job offers changed my life. 
I made, I was a millionaire nine months out of law school because I took a job that paid $250,000 a year and I figured out the math, how to literally work 56 days a week. And I did it by math, but I, you know, people will laugh and say, you made a million dollars in nine months. I go, yeah, but I worked 10 years and I actually wasn't that good at it. I made a hundred grand a year by working 10 years in nine months because I looked at productivity and I wanted, you know, most people are eight hours productive in a day. I became 64 hours of productive seven days a week. And I figured I'd beat them by math. I didn't have to be as good as a salesperson. Now, didn't that like burn you out? No, well, that was the, that was the plug in part that I started realizing at a young age. And I, you know, there's other guys like, I don't know if you met Gary Vaynerchuk, because we oh, yeah, both feel it. Him. Yeah, yeah. so like Gary. yeah, Gary feels the same way. I believe that it's the exact opposite. I believe that we become tired because we create interference between the power source. And, you know, here I was connected to the power source. I learned to love everything that I do. So if I'm pursuing something and that excitement keeps going, and I've used that source for so long to be more productive and accessible, and when I say accessible, I don't just mean accessibility to others. I mean accessing what I want. And no, I I am one of those people, Dave, probably like you, I don't, I pass out, but I don't get exhausted and emotionally worn out I, because I go back to center when those negative energies start interfering with my direct connection to the source. And I constantly try to expand my connection to the source so I have more and more energy. And I believe that's really happening in my life. Yeah, that that's a really important nuance you just pointed out there. Um, in fact, let, let me ask you this question. People ask me this a lot. What do you struggle with the most? Ego. So okay. I struggle. Here, here's the here's the fact, and I'll give this great story. But this this is the quintessential thing in my life. I wake up at four a.m. I meditate for twenty. I then get ready and I go to the gym by four thirty, and I get home by five thirty from the gym when I'm at home. I walk outside a Saturday morning at 4.30 and my 17-year-old daughter's car is not there. Now, I know and I've learned everything that I'm supposed to do, but yet I pick up this phone Mm -hmm. and I am one number away from yelling, swearing, screaming, and destroying my relationship with my 17-year-old daughter. Right. I then stop, drop, and roll. I learn, (laughs) I, I, I catch myself, I catch myself, and I put myself down and then I call her calmly because I ask myself, why am I so mad? And I tell myself, because I'm scared to death. That's, yeah. that's my baby. I, I can't put like, so you're going to ruin this relationship because you you care about and love her. Then treat her like you care about and love her. Don't treat it like yeah. you hate her. So I call her calmly and say, where are you? She says, I'm in bed. I'm like, where? In her house. Where's your car? It's at the grocery store. Kids were drinking. You told me, Dad, if kids are drinking, <laughs> that I'm better off to Uber home. And I'm just listening to you. And I'm like, I am so sorry I woke you. Go back to bed. I'm proud of you. Now, that's years and years of thinking. The biggest problem or challenge I have is that we are here to learn lessons. If I learn the lessons, they'll stop coming. But here's the trick. No matter what lessons I've learned, and this is the biggest challenge I believe for everyone, I'm going to forget every lesson I learn from time to time whether it's gratitude, forgiveness, I'm going to forget those lessons. So how well practiced, how strong is the muscles that I have to try to, to remember? And I have the capability of remembering all lessons at any time. And because of the internet, I can access the lessons at any time. But no matter what, I can't give myself an egoectomy. 
I am always going to be struggling and fighting the ego-based consciousness that will create shortages, voids, obstacles, and resistance in my life. It is the challenge of all challenge, how quickly I can get to peace and how often I can stay at peace. And this to me is my ultimate life goal because I think the better we become at it, the more happier happy we are. And the cool thing about happiness is it affects everybody biochemically, <laughs> the yeah. people that receive it, the people that witness it. And we can change the world if we figure out systematically, mathematically, scientifically happiness and get better, work those muscles to stay at peace and not live in ego-based consciousness of fear. Um, that's a pretty powerful answer. Now, what's the difference between struggling with something and then working on something like is constant vigilance a struggle or is struggle itself an ego thing? Yeah. So I believe that within every struggle is, is ego, right? Because you would have to want something that's missing. Um, okay. I believe that if you're pursuing something, there's always ego involved in where I like to go with that to understand the distinction is fear. And you actually, you gave a speech at the TLC uh, with your lion creature, I forget his name, that represented the ego. And I, I learned so okay. much from that because I learned about the the actual basics of the ego and the, of fear and all of that. And what was interesting is I looked at it on a sports level and said, so many athletes tell me that they're motivated by fear. And then listening yeah. to your speech, I was like, this is impossible. Dave's teaching me all this stuff about the ego. The ego is one of the biggest depreciators of energy. It actually, you know, is a soul sucking thing, but yet you taught me fear has a purpose. It provides extreme focus. And we, what we yeah. do is we get mistaken by an energy sucker that we're focused. I'll give you an example. You know, the old lady that picks up the car because the baby's yeah. run over. Well, people think that she was inspired by fear. No, she wasn't. She got hyper-focused. It created a biochemical reaction that created great strength from great focus to, to help the baby. But nobody talks about what happened to that lady afterwards. She had torn ligaments, muscles, strained back. It <laughs> took her weeks, if not months, to recover. And that's yeah. what we do with fear. It's not a sustainable thing in order to expand and accelerate what we want. So what do we do? I think the struggle and challenge is how do I substitute something with fear? How can I, when fear's there, if put it into the right trajectory and move it into an inspiration, move it into a pursuit that has positive qualities so that I can expand. But at its core, when you have a challenge or a struggle to get something, when you're pursuing something, you still have a perspective of just enough or not enough. Because if you truly, right. how, how, do, how do we balance living in a world of more than enough and still living by the law of Goya? Why would you work hard, smart, and long if you already have everything that you've ever wanted or ever needed? That's the ultimate to me. Mental struggle in my life is like, I get more than enough, but I'm not willing to participate in that game yet, in the ultimate infinity game. I'd rather, I enjoy the pursuit. I enjoy the consistent, persistent challenges. I enjoy the idea right. that at times I live in a world of more than enough, but yeah, there's just enough sometimes for me. I want more. Uh, got it. And so that that's sort of how you think about struggle. Um, you talk a lot in, in your new book about offense and defense, you know, of branding and marketing of communication and, and also just the, the core, you know, the happy athlete and, and the guys I've met who are top of their game. I'm thinking of like the, the Brian brothers and Nick Foles and uh, a few of the, they're like profoundly spiritual, uh, at least uh, some of the time and certainly like humble 
and you know there's a different energy to them than the you know i'm gonna kill the enemy kind of thing which is you know the stereotypical sports movie um so like it's very different than than i would expect it to be but how do you take that you know offense and defense which is frankly those are egoic things like okay i've got to you know take or i've got to protect all right how do you apply that to something like branding or marketing like how, how does that work yeah so you know uh, just in all transparency, which I try to be and illuminate things, right? When we put titles onto uh, things, we have publishers that may not understand what we understand. So yes, the offense and defense for me, though, is understanding frequency. So br- br- branding okay. and marketing, you know, I've been blessed to run the most notable sports agency in the world. So we have brands like Troy Aikman, Steve Young, Warren Moon, Lennox Lewis, Evander Holyfield, probably even names that you recognize. You don't have to be a sports hero to yeah, know. Yeah, no, I, I, th- those are names I know. I, I, I do live in a cave, but it's not that deep. <laughs> right. And so, th- you know, that was what make the Jerry Maguire thing nice. But it's really about three parts of frequency. And I think it's more important than ever because of social media that before we could only reach so many people. Now, 4.2 billion and growing are available to us to hear our frequency. So what are the three things we look at in the offense and defense of marketing and branding? One, the strength of your signal. Right? How far is that signal going to, to, to reach by how high the frequency or vibration is? More importantly than even the strength of the signal, I believe is the spectrum of your signal. You know, there's people that speak and multitudes of demographics it resonates with. And you and I both have experienced this. One of the most remarkable things that's happened to me is I did a keynote speech for the Denny's franchise, 7,000 franchisees, big, huge stage. And I talked about saying thank you before you go to bed and when you wake up is the easiest way to change your life. And I gave them a gratitude challenge and said, anyone that can do that, I guarantee that your life will change within 30 days. It's true. People lined up for an hour to an hour and 15 minutes to speak with me, to tell me that I had now changed their life, that they were going to say thank you every day. And they, they had to tell me that this was a significant thing. Now, Every one of those people had heard gratitude before, but it was now the force of my signal in the spectrum yeah. in which the frequency that it touched them emotionally, right? Here's the offense and defense of it. And then the last part is because of practice, I have greater clarity in what I'm saying. And a lot of what we speak about, why it resonates is because we've taken highly complex, confusing, metaphysical, physical you know, things that most people won't understand if we were talking at a scientific level from your neural feedback training to everything. And you break it down to, hey, dude, say thank you when you go to bed and when you wake up yeah. and you'll change your life for 30 days. There's a magic in that clarity. Okay. So it's about having some spark of communication or the, the ability to say it in a way that it lands. And yeah, that that is the greatest challenge in what I do. And it's, it's, uh, that's why I became a teacher years ago at the University of California. I, was, I said, I, I think I'd like to learn how to do that, but um, you know, someday I'll be an expert because um, it, it's it's the hardest thing. So translating knowledge into actionable materials is is tough. But you you clearly, I mean, Forbes named you as one of the most sought after inspirational speakers. So I'd say you you kind of nailed that one. We're getting there, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, it, it's a it, it's a constant challenge, and um, I'm thinking about. Uh, you know, what you said there, okay, you know, publishers, have you do this and have you do that? And I do the same thing in my books. It's like, all right, how do I, how do I put the words on the cover that are frankly going to appeal to someone's ego uh, so that they'll read the book, even if 
part of what's in the book is, hey, here's how you manage that ego that made you pick up the book, uh, whether it's a diet book or a personal development book or whatever. And it sounds like you kind of did the same thing. But yeah, my, talk- my next book's worse because it's going to be Don't Do Business with Dicks. <laughs> You know, if only I had that advice when I was young. <laughs> That's gonna, it's going to be a bestseller. It could be empty on the inside. That title will sell millions of books. It, it is a great title. And uh, are you really going to write that one? Oh, I wrote it already. Okay, I literally, good. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. The, the problem is, and I'm going to be real crass here, um, having a good dick detector is hard because the best dicks hide themselves. Right. right, and and they're hard to find. All right, so uh, since you uh, now now we're going to go into your next book that people can't nice. even buy yet. So, all right, how do how do you spot the dicks early? Well, you know, being a recovering manipulator, liar, overseller, and back end seller, uh, <laughs> what I, what I've learned is, you know, like any decision, and I'm going to go back to the to the book I just wrote. Wh- what it is is why do very successful people make decisions so quickly. It's it's a habit that I have seen, the trend that I've yeah. seen, you know, very successful people make quick decisions. It's because they know their values. Not only do they know their values, at a higher statistical success, they live by their values. Just like we were talking about frequency, that's what people mean by authentic. You know, it's overused mm-hmm. and misused when we say, gotta be authentic, right? No, you gotta find your frequency. You gotta know what you are. You gotta know what your values are. So what I did through experience is I broke down my values to four things, and I knew that every day I had to evaluate the percentage of those values because they're gonna change throughout my lifetime. So I have personal values. So some of the significant things I do personally is a minimum of one hour a day is for my health. That is a new thing that I do the last two years and it has changed. Go back and look at videos. This is a different embodiment because every day before my family, before my work, you know, my job, that my health, well, personal values, then I have experiential values. Uh, you know, and at a younger age, my experiential values, in fact, I'm sending my middle child to college and I told her this is an experiential thing. If I really just wanted you to learn, you could sit at home with me and I'll tell you the websites to go to and the videos exactly. to watch. And you'd be a lot cheaper than, trust me, a lot cheaper than I'm paying. But it's an experience. Then every day, what what are my giving values? You know, wh- what am I going to pr- produce today? And then what are my receiving values? What do I want to ask for? You know, what am I going to receive? And I think that in order to to have a dick detector, that when we're firm and understand what the values that we have for that day are objective of our values, when someone is not aligned with those values, we have to walk away. It's not going to get any better. So when someone makes a racist remark to me and I used to play it off and say, well, not a big deal, you know, that's a significant thing to me. You know, yeah. I don't want to be around that energy. I, I don't care if it's ignorance. I don't have to change the person, but I don't have to be around it. And I don't have to do business with it. I don't want to be around low energy. And I've learned that if you're not aligned with my values, then then I'm going to find someone that is. And, you know, I don't you don't have to be exactly on my values, but there's certain things in my value system that I won't do business with. I won't choose to be with you. Yeah. I, uh, I, I like that. So just having the values and by the way, you and I share that health one and most people don't, I, I work with the Bulletproof employees and the same thing. Like, look, you can't take care of your family. You can't take care of your job if you can't take care of yourself. So yeah. I, and I, people say, Oh, I, you know, I need to take time off and, and I'm like, good. 
Keep me too. Because if you don't take care of your health, you can't do anything. And like, why do I want sick people at the office? Yeah. Like, that doesn't make well, any sense. I tell sense. people all the time if you don't take time for your wellness, then you better store up time for your illness. <laughs> yeah. It, it's true, but you know how few people listening to this right now actually put their health above their family? I did for 49 years, and I, I knew health was important, yeah. but I did not. And, and it's so hard to walk away from your nine-year-old and say, hey, buddy, I can't do this with you right now because I promised myself I'm going to go do 30 minutes of cardio on the Peloton. Yep. You know, for me and for you, because I'm going to be a great dad to you because I'm going to live a lot longer, and I'm going to be able to run with you, you know, when I'm 60. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, it, it's really hard, but you know, my, my son's nine as well. And, and like, man, I, I, I'd really rather do something more fun. So, uh, but that said, I know that if I don't, I don't do that and it comes to food and it comes to exercise and sleep and all that stuff. And, um, the self-sacrificing stuff, even that your mom did, right. It, it probably wasn't in her best interest and maybe she could have, you know, been a, a better mom if she sacrificed less. Yeah. She, right? she's a catalyst. I tell her all the time. I said, isn't it ironic yeah. that all your children have to take care of you because you didn't take care of yourself. You put everybody before you. And I said, I don't mind. Yeah. I, go, I don't mind, but I go, it's kind of like, what if yeah. you use all of that catalytic power to build yourself up so you could just empowered us you, you know what i mean like li literally with a di different economy and she would always say when i she said i was lost about money i my justification was always you know what i'm gonna make enough money to hire a thousand of you because i don't need to personally go teach second grade i'd rather hire a thousand unbelievable teachers like you that can teach the second grade uh, and donate that money and so it was always this complete different philosophy she was the catalyst and you know i was the source <laughs> that is that's cool well, I, I really appreciate that you shared just what that you've made that change as a hyper successful guy, right? I mean, in multiple careers and all that, you know, big charity. Like, I don't know, you you, you kind of fit the mold for a guy who's kicking ass on multiple levels. Um, but even with all that, only two years ago, did you say, oh, hey, I'm going to put my health ahead of all that stuff so I can do all that stuff. Um, I want everyone listening to the show to, to really just let that sink in for a minute because... Um, I don't think enough of us do that. And, and in fact, because of our puritanical Western upbringing there, we actually value, oh, like, look, I, I'm on the grind. I'm going to hustle. Like I, I'm going to eat garbage for three years and it's going to make me rich. And it's like, actually eating garbage for three years, even if you make some money, it's going to make you poor. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like that message doesn't get out there enough. So thanks for saying it. Can I, can I tell you what's yeah. interesting? To reiterate that, I was on this unbelievable panel, CEO, chairman of, of Burger King, you know, HBO's head, and all these extraordinary people. And they asked, what's the number one piece of advice that you would give? And here I was again, you know, be kind to your future self, do good deeds, right. you know, and other people are like, study harder. But I love the lady from HBO because you weren't expecting it, she said, and I wish I would have said it because I agreed with her and said, I'm taking back mine. Mm -hmm. I believe hers is the best advice. She said, find something that you love to do for your health that you can do your entire life and do it every day. Wow. And and so she's, I'm sitting there living, you know, my minimum of an hour a day, but it was so ingrained in her to know that that is actually the most important thing that she could teach all of these, you know, thousands of kids was simply find something that you love to do for your health every single day that you can do the rest of your life. And I said, that is it. 
just like you're saying, you cannot ignore it because if you put your family in, in business before your health, you'll never choose your health. I mean, you and I have both given lots <laughs> of keynotes to rooms full of, I'm going to be real stereotypical here because this is what it actually looks like, fat old white guys. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Those are, I see you it. see it, right? And the world is changing. Now we actually have uh, rooms where we have fat old uh, mixed race and mixed genders. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. But still, the fat and old and, and unfortunately, I think we have more yeah. young. We have more young fat people. You know, with a trend, I see you know more fit thirty, forty, and fifty year olds than I do twenty. That's true. And and you're not exactly ten percent body fat right now. So this isn't about fat shaming. All I'm using fat as a proxy for unhealthy people who are highly successful. And I just, I want to change the picture of that uh, to say, hey part of being successful is you took care of yourself because who really cares if you lead a big company, um, if you're tired in pain and you act like a jerk half the time because of it. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't get that early on in my career. So let, let's hope that, uh, that the world is changing from that front. And every time you give a talk like that, uh, I think you're doing your part to help, uh, you know, help the current generation see what you've seen and, and the next generation too. And it's interesting, too, because it's not just that. Like you said, my father gave me a great warning sign at 30. I wasn't close to him, but I had hated him because he forgot my birthday when I was 10. He sends me a birthday gift. My dad smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. He's now dead at 80 from a genetic family that lives to 97, 100. And literally, he ate wrong. It wasn't that he was fat, right? He, he just yeah. wasn't healthy, like you said. So it's not. it's more than just being fat. He yeah. gave me a jacket when I was 30 years old and tore out all the pockets. And I called him upset. I was like, what are you doing? Are you torturing me? He said, I don't want you to be like me. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because I have sacrificed everything for money. And he says, I'm hanging that jacket in your closet to remind you of me every day, to remind you, you can't take anything with you when you're gone. You don't need to be the richest man in the cemetery, right? And, and when I was 30, he was already 60. And wow. you know, he only had 20 more years, but I think he already felt the mistakes. And one of them being that he was unhealthy. He coughed up a lung every time you know he spoke with me, even when he was 60 years old. I would say in my life, my family lived so long that my dad, for what he did to himself, was a genetic freak because living on candy and cigarettes to, to 80 is a miracle. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty tough yeah. uh, to do. I, I don't think I, I don't think I have those genetics. Let's put it that way, man. Uh, cra crazy pants stuff. But a lot of people, I think, are weaker now than they used to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, th this is fascinating to get inside. You know, why you are who you are, because you know, I, I don't know if I did a good enough job of of kind of explaining at the beginning of the show uh, the the level of success you've lived uh, in order to be able to sit down and and say, I've just written this book that's worth reading. Right, because it's easy to write a book. I mean, there's a lot of 22 year old life coaches out there, uh, and, and you know they can write a book. But you're like, who are you copying? Because I want to <laughs> talk to that guy. Because you haven't lived it enough. Like you haven't, you know, you haven't done the work yet. Uh, but you've you've done the work, and you know you've been really high and really low, and gotten back to really high. Uh, one more question for you, uh, which is cool because we're we're ending on on health anyway. Now, question for you. you know, you're a little bit older than I am. How long do you think you've got, given what you know about your health? I love that question. Yeah. I know, and I used to tell people that I was going to die at 111 on January 11th at 111. I was born January 11th at 111, but I, Diane Cannon, uh, who's 84 years old and wears five-inch heels, and we share our Laker seats down there on the baseline of Laker games. 
I told her that. I said, I know that I'm going to live to 111. And she looked me in the eyes and said, why are you limiting yourself? She was literally <laughs> like sad. Already. She was, so now <laughs> I say, at a minimum, Dave, I'm going to live to a minimum of 111. And I'll decide past that. But minimum, I know at least 111 years old. You know, that is a profoundly good answer. And, and people in, in media, they're like, you're going to live to 180. I'm like, no, 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 at least. Like, don't limit me, man. Like, that's rude. Exactly. Good. Right? Exactly. Don't limit me either. Always say minimum or at least. Yeah. Universe doesn't know numbers. You just create resistance. That's all. Exactly. So that that's a minimum uh, so there you go, at least 111. And is that based on any sort of like, because now I'm exercising, now I'm eating the right diet, or is that just because I'm bullheaded and I've got willpower to manifest it? Two, I, you, I guess there's three things there. One, genetically, right? I, my great aunts, the grandparents lived to 97, great aunts to 106. So okay. I think genetically I have a good disposition to make it. I think I have the attitude to make it. And now I think I have the practice to even make it and feel good at, at 111, right? I, like, I'm not just talking live into 111. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to be in a bed. I'm talking, I'm going to fall asleep one night. And it, it, when I'm over 111, somewhere in there, I'm just going to, instead of just passing out, going to bed, I'm going to pass out and go to my next, my, my next journey. Yep. There you go. I, uh, I, I like that too. Yeah. The definition of living isn't tubes and monitors. Uh, yeah. although frankly, if those are necessary, you might want to do that for a week or two. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, no. Heal. <laughs> They're for healing. Tubes and monitors are for healing, not for living. There you go. Well, well put. Well, uh, David, it's been a great pleasure. Uh, people can find your new book online by looking for Game Time Decision Making and your website, DaveMeltzer.com, M-E-L-T-Z-E-R. Anywhere else they should go? Uh, at David Meltzer, David Meltzer on YouTube, David Meltzer on LinkedIn. So, uh, you know, and you can use dmeltzer.com too. So I'm trying to get away from, there's that marketing side, that Dave and David confusion. So David Meltzer me. for the book. Yeah. Oh, so the, the book other Dave is Meltzer. David, but your website's Dave. Oh my God. Yeah. That's why I switched it to D Meltzer. Cause okay. the guy who owns David Meltzer wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> oh man, that guy Well, go yeah. do some energetic forgiveness gratitude exactly it's right there the power <laughs> and so you guys can't see him on the screen uh but he just did a mudra uh from like a yoga practice for uh for forgiveness the judah buddha's at work <laughs> <laughs> all right it's it's been a great pleasure to chat with you again uh and i think last time we chatted was actually at the unstoppable uh gala uh, to raise um, all that money for girls in africa which is awesome thank you by and the way thank you for that work as well if you're listening to this and you're excited about that idea that what would happen if there were schools for girls in villages where there never have been schools for girls before? Uh, well, it turns out that's a big charity thing uh, that you can do, and it's called the Unstoppable Foundation. And uh, I'm I'm a supporter. I donate 40 years of Zen things for auction at that, uh, and uh, David runs it. So that's another place to go if if that just piques your charitable interest. Uh, it's you. a long term investment, but it's worth doing as well. Thank you. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Go out there and read Game Time Decision Making, or maybe just sleep better or have a gratitude practice or any of the other things that actually don't require you to put butter in your coffee. But frankly, you might want to do that too. You just don't have to. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.